The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. beginning at verse 22 through 34, reading from the English Standard Version. And Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of them. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old and with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is God's own word. Some of you know the name of the columnist Andre Sue, who writes in the Christian news journal World magazine. Just yesterday, the latest edition arrived in my mail, and I was fascinated to see that Andre Sue's column was about worry, the subject of our text. Here's something she said as a self-confessed worrier. Quote, I often drop whatever I am doing just to have myself a good worry. The other day I was trying to figure out exactly what I was worried about so I could worry over it more properly. We chuckle because it describes us sometimes, doesn't it? Believe it or not, I do some sermon research these days, not just in commentaries, but on the World Wide Web, and I came across a website called panic-anxiety.com, and I was looking around there at what panic-anxiety.com had to say. It was talking about the interesting ways that 
our behavior and our lives display the symptoms when we're worried or when we're anxious. There's a physiological set of symptoms, you know, that include sweaty palms and uh, your heart kind of starts beating quickly and your throat might constrict a little bit. Your knees might feel weak. There are psychological symptoms to anxiety like restlessness, sleeplessness, irritability. And then there's a whole social dimension too where people who are anxious tend to pull away from crowds or strangers and either spend time by themselves or at least with one or two people that they can trust or feel comforted by. And you know, anxiety and worry spawn whole industries in our society. We talk about creating jobs. Uh, there, there aren't many things that create more jobs than worry. Think about it. Counselors, psychiatrists, many drugs, massage therapy, hypnosis, meditation, herbal potions, breathing techniques, yoga, on and on and on, things that we do to try to relax or, as we sometimes say, chill out, just to relieve our worries. Well, Jesus Christ offered his disciples a simpler but really much more profound antidote to the worries of life when he said, do not be anxious because you have a good father who knows what you need. Now, that sounds so simple. And you say, well, that's too easy. But really, it's very profound. It goes right to the depth of the issue. Our text today ought to be seen as a companion piece to what we looked at last week in the parable of the rich fool, the greedy man who had a lot, who built bigger and bigger barns to contain all of his crops and his goods, and he was all about self, my crops, my barns, me, 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 until his soul was required of him. The message was, of course, the futility of covetousness, of of greed, of gathering possessions all to yourself. Well, you see, if, if that is addressing the person perhaps that has a lot and how he needs to regard material things, Jesus might be speaking now more to the person who has little. In fact, he has turned, if you look in verse 22, he's speaking to his disciples here more specifically than just the general crowd. And think about who his disciples were. They were people who had left their vocations. And they literally were on a faith pilgrimage with Christ not knowing day to day where their next meal might be coming from or where they'd be sleeping that night. And he was saying to them, look, If I'm talking to you about wealth, I realize you don't have that. You might be worried about the fishing practice that you left back there in Capernaum. You might be wondering, how are we going to eat tomorrow? Don't be worried. Don't be anxious about your life. And then he elaborates a number of reasons why. But I think he's saying that worry could be the poor man's form of covetousness the wrong kind of thinking towards material goods that could be destructive to our lives. For after all, worry never made anybody's life stronger today. When you're out there preoccupied with all your fears of what could go wrong three weeks from now, you're not making your life better today. And you're not making your life better three weeks from now either. One writer said worry is, quote, a 
thin stream of fear trickling through the mind. And if its flow is left unchecked, it cuts a deeper channel into which all of our faith in Christ tends to drain away. Jesus told us obsessive worry over material provisions for life is actually a pagan thing, something that worldly people can be forgiven for doing, but a Christian should not be forgiven for doing because it's antagonistic to everything he or she is. Now, we could go to other places in Scripture and learn that we are urged to work hard, to plan ahead, not to live undisciplined lives and just stumble along and think, well, the money will drop out of the sky somehow. No, of course, we're supposed to work. We're supposed to plan. We're supposed to save and all these things. But when we've done everything humanly possible, we are asked then to trust God, not to tie ourselves into knots over how to control the food and the clothing and the roof over our heads a week or a month or a year from now. Jesus makes several arguments here that I'm going to try to elaborate in Luke 12 about how to shove worry aside by displacing it with a primary interest in the eternal kingdom and how to replace anxiety with something you might not expect, generosity. First of all, Jesus said, worry is that which fails to grasp the essence of life. Worry doesn't even understand what life is. It's, it's working on the peripheral details without understanding what the core of being alive is. Verse 23, he said, life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. I was interviewing uh, some new members, hoping to join our church soon the other day, and this couple, one couple told an interesting story. The lady said that she had grown up in a house where she had little or almost no religious training or exposure to church, and she graduated from high school and went to work at a large corporation. And uh, as about a 19-year-old there, the young person at this big office, she became friendly with an older woman, kind of a mother figure who was a very strong personality and seemed to have things together, and she liked to have lunch with this woman. And she said, one day, I don't know what got into me, but out of the blue, I asked this more mature woman, what is the meaning of life? Well, there's a question to ask somebody at the lunch hour. And, and the woman replied, and what she said was probably a good humanistic answer, but it wasn't the answer I would have given. But she said, well, when you have children, you will find out that raising your children and your pride in them, that's the meaning of life. Well, this lady said she was already married at that time, quite young, and so soon after she had children. And she said, I love my children, and I was proud of my children, but I thought about that, what I'd been told, that they were the meaning of life. And she said, I found, no, they weren't the be-all and end-all reason for being alive. And she told how a few years later she and her husband both encountered the truth of the gospel and found that they needed to bow their lives before the meaning of life, Jesus Christ, and found a new life. And her question was answered. Well, Jesus is saying we cannot be satisfied if all we're doing in our living is acting like we were just bodies, just a a big heap of chemicals and electrical stimulations responding to things the way a 
you know, an amoeba does or something like that. If that's all we're doing, that's not the life we were intended to live. We are immortal souls charged to discover what God intended us to be when he made us in the first place, charged to give him praise. We actually said it in the catechism this morning, the famous first question and answer. What is the chief end of man? That's saying, really, what is the meaning of life? Same question. What was the answer? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, to know God And we find, of course, the gospel tells us that we can only know him through Jesus Christ. And discovering that our souls are are actually born in a spiritually dead state, and they need to be brought to life and awakened by the Holy Spirit, and then they can know Christ and know God, who said, Christ said, of course, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And nobody comes to God and discovers what life is except through me. He also said, I'm come that they might have life and have it abundantly. So he's the center of life. If you're just living in this world in a biological, materialistic universe and saying, well, I'm just one little cog in the great big biological material machine, you're going to worry There's all kinds of threatening things to worry about. But Jesus says, don't start out with a wrong understanding of what life is. He talks about food and clothing here. It makes me think about the fashion industry. I think I've said in sermons before that I'm quite a fan of the actress Meryl Streep. I think she's the greatest actress of her generation. And I, I love the movie The Devil Wears Prada, where the, you learn about the, the fashion couture industry. It's just a, a delightful peek into something that most of us don't know anything about, this couture industry where, where men and women create the fashions that influence the whole world out of Paris and New York and other places. And, and they think, I guess, that they are the engine that, that really drives society. Well, that's a pitiful idea. The idea that people who combine fabrics and rearrange them in different ways or make them in different colors or drape them this way this year and that way next year, that that's what life is about? How pitiful. How foolish. Jesus says life is knowing the only true God and his Son whom he sent into the world that we might know him. Only in Christ do we discover the peace and the rest that we can have offered to us by our God. Jesus argues here under this first point that worry fails to grasp the essence of life, that worry is futile. You can do it, you can exert all your energy, and you won't change anything by it. You won't improve anything. You won't lengthen your life because you're probably spending most of that worry energy on fears that are never going to come to place in the first place, and any fears or negative things that will happen to you quite often will be things you didn't anticipate in the first place. So what's the point of worrying? It never has a grasp on anything that's really going to change the future for the better. In fact, instead of adding to your life, it actually steals from your life. It ruins your health. It takes up your time. And it's impotent to make the slightest benefit for you. Worry fails to grasp the essence of life. Well, let's go on then. 
And if I'm looking at verses 24 and then 27 and 28 combined here, I would say this about them. Worry denies God's good providence. This is, you might say, the core of the passage, these two sort of mini parables about the birds and the flowers and God's providential provision that even ravens, who are not particularly attractive, birds. I don't know if you ever had a raven for a pet, but I wouldn't have come over to your house and enjoyed your pet if you did. I don't like ravens. They're kind of ugly. They make nasty noises. They're scavengers. They're not among the more attractive members of the bird family. They don't farm. They don't, uh, they have no industry. They don't work jobs. They scavenge. They pick up whatever's left around on the earth, even dead things, ugly things. And yet Jesus says, think of them. God provides for them to live. They don't fall over dead of hunger under normal circumstances. Billions of birds don't fall over dead, at least before their natural time, just because they're hungry in a normal course of things. These living things that don't have a brain, that don't pray, that don't do all the things you can do, God sustains And then he goes on to say, consider the flowers. I had occasion at the first service to lean over and see how the flowers were doing. Now that we've moved them to a different place, you may have noticed. And, you know, Jesus says, look at flowers. I I took flowers for granted a large part of my life. They were just sort of something that was out there. I never planted them. I didn't tend them. I gave them to girlfriends and my wife, of course. But uh, I didn't have too much to do with them other than that. But, you know, you get older and you say, flowers, they're amazing. They're wonderful. They're beautiful. These explosions of color and design that somebody has to, unfortunately, cut down and stick in a vase at the church and end their life. But Jesus says, look, Solomon, Solomon, who wore gold and purple all day long, wasn't arrayed any better than a flower that God makes. Think of the logic he's presenting here. This is that how much more logic. He twice says that phrase here. A particular kind of logical argument that says, if this least thing is true, then the greater thing will be true. You see how he's using that? Same argument that Jesus used in Luke 11 when he was talking about prayer and said, you know, here's the lazy neighbor who wouldn't get out of his bed at night when the next-door neighbor needed bread to entertain guests, and he finally said, oh, all right, I'll come just so you'll go away. How much more will your father care for you if even a lazy, non-compassionate neighbor will finally do the right thing? That's what he's claiming here again. How much more will God care for you? You're made in his image. You're his child. He desires the best for you. And if you know Christ, you're his adopted son or daughter under the gospel of righteousness. Martin Luther had a comment on this passage about the flowers and where he said, the flowers stand in their field and make us blush as they become our teachers in this matter of grace. Do we believe that God is wise in his daily providence towards us? Well, the real question is, do we believe that when it's hard to believe it? You know, if you're employed right now and things are going well for you and you're healthy, your relationships with people are basically good, you say, sure, God's good in his daily providence. But what if you haven't worked 
in six months? What if you've been trying to sell that house that I know people in this congregation who've had houses on the market for months or more than a year? And you're saying, oh, God, when is that going to happen? Please let that house sell. Please lead me to the job. Then it's hard to answer that question and say, yes, God is wise in his daily providence over my life right now. He asks us to do all that's humanly possible, to make good plans, to seek jobs, to knock on every door, to circulate our resume, do all the things, and then to trust him. And then to say, Father, it's you who are going to help me here. I don't know when it's going to come, how it's going to come. Make me wise to do everything I can do the right way. But once I have, help me to trust you that you're my father and you really do know what I need and you will bring it to pass. Jesus here actually in verse 28 calls a warrior a person of little faith. He doesn't say you have no faith, but he says your faith is pretty weak if you can't trust the father who's going to do more for you than he does for a flower in the field or a raven on a tree. A psalm I love very much is Psalm 37. Why don't you look there with me for just a minute? I'm not going to go off on too much of a tangent here, but it'd be worth you looking at these words. Psalm 37, one of my top encouraging psalms. David's first words in Psalm 37, one are, fret not yourself. Don't be worried. What is he addressing? Well, he's addressing people who thought that the worldly folks, the ungodly folks, are always winning and always getting the best hand all the time, and the believer isn't getting anything. I'd urge you to read this psalm carefully and prayerfully, but I'm just going to focus for a minute and have you look at verses 24 and 25, because here's kind of a summary or maybe the climax, you could say, of the psalm, where he's speaking about a man, a godly person who waits before the Lord, affirms trust, and says, God, I have to trust you. I can't do anything else. I don't know why I'm not prospering and everybody else is. Here's what he says. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. Then this great statement, I have been young, and now I am old, and I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging bread. That's God's promise. He won't forsake us. He won't leave us destitute. Perhaps we won't have all the luxuries. Perhaps we'll go through a time of life of tremendous challenge. He doesn't say those things couldn't happen. They will happen. But his promise is, I will not forsake the one who belongs to me. And that's a promise you can actually take to the very bank of heaven. Well, the third argument of Jesus here is in verses 30 to 34 as we close with this, telling disciples this statement, that worry belongs to the wrong kingdom. Quite often, Jesus is is drawing a contrast between two utterly separate ways to live. You can live like the worldly person with all the worldly person's values, and here's what it will look like. But if you choose to live as the godly man or woman who looks to Christ as Savior and God as King and Lord, 
Here's what it should look like. That's what he's doing here when he says, why are you chasing all these things the nations of the world seek after? In other words, people with no godliness at all are seeking these material things and fretting about them and worrying about them and and they've got to take Xanax or whatever to to get themselves calmed down because they're so worried about what won't happen in their life. You can choose that or you can take the way of the godly person and seek first God's kingdom and then know that these other things will be added to you, says verse 31. Now he's saying, in other words, you can be like the unbelieving people and there are, these people are all over the place and some of them are very, very successful. They're in Congress, they're heads of corporations, they're scientists and professors and business heads and everything else. Because they chase after wealth and security and success. That's what they're after. That's their heart's desire. And sometimes they're getting it very well. But are you as a believer, redeemed and made new as a creature of God in Jesus Christ, going to sink to that level? Or do you have a different, overwhelming obsession and desire motivating you, which is to know the only true God and bring glory to him? I'm sure you're aware that one of the Middle East's most ugly dictators has come to his end. The reports have been pretty shocking the last few days, haven't they, as Muammar Gaddafi has met his end after 42 years as an absolute tyrant in his country. A man who manipulated the wealth of that oil country to his own advantage to have, I'm sure, millions and millions of it stowed away to buy anything he wanted. There was, I saw some, uh, when he first fled the capital, they took a little tour of his private jet. I never saw anything so luxurious as the interior of this jet that he flew around in. And when he was killed, the one man held up his gold-plated pistol. What a symbol for what your, your ended life. And there now today, this man who lived for power, for tyranny, for money, 42 years, he had it all. Today, if you were in the right place and stood in line, you could go through a Libyan meat locker and see his bloody body sprawled out on the floor. Thus comes the end of tyrants and the end of people who live only for themselves and their own greed. Jesus is saying we must disown the heart desires of people like this and know that we belong to another kingdom completely an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that can't fade, that can't be stripped away from us. We can't lose it in any way. It's our eternal salvation and all of its results. And if we will pursue that and seek that, to grow in that, and to make that known to others, then these material things, sure, they're important. We're not saying you don't have to eat or you don't have to have a house, but they, in their secondary nature, will fall into the proper place that they deserve and not consume you. The Bible doesn't say you're ever going to be rich. You know, these preachers that get on with their shows about God wants everybody to be rich and send me fifty nine ninety five and you'll be rich or something. I don't know. Nonsense. God doesn't want everybody to be rich. Many of the greatest people that have ever served the Lord have been destitute. They've been poor. They've, they've almost had to beg their meals in the world to really pursue the kingdom of God. But he's not necessarily calling you to poverty either. What he is saying is you'll have enough. 
You'll have a sufficiency. Your Father is good. He knows your need. He won't let you fall off the cliff. Psalm 84.11 says, No good thing will be withheld from him who walks uprightly. We'll be tested. I've been tested. Now, I've been in my past, not today, but I've seen a house linger on the market for 16 months, most painful thing I ever went through. And I said, God, why is this happening? I, I, was, I was confessing sin like never before. There, there's got to be something I missed. And that was good, you know, going through the list. What did I do wrong? I think I'm doing what you want me to do. And the suffering was really painful. And it came to me in the end that there wasn't a reason. This wasn't a one-to-one punishment for something I was doing wrong. But somehow, for reasons I don't know, my father was letting me be strengthened by trusting him in a new way, because I had to. And I know I came out of that not knowing the reason, but knowing my father better than I've ever known him before, because I trusted him. In Luke 12, 32 and 33, we have a last word here about something that actually can replace your anxiety and your worry. If you've moved it aside by pursuing the right kingdom, something will come and sit in its place. And you might actually find it disruptive, the verse 33, that suddenly says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. You say, what does that have to do with worry? I think it has this to do with it. The person who has learned to pursue the right kingdom is a person that isn't gripping materialism. You know, worried people have to keep their fists tight to hold on to all their material stuff. The person who pursues God's kingdom starts to do this, opens their hands, carries their possessions lightly, is willing to divest themselves of a lot of the extraneous stuff they have and say, how can I be generous? How can I share? How can I invest in God's work? And generosity comes in as a fruit, you see, of pursuing the right kingdom. You can almost use it as a barometer to see the people that have given up this anxiety often, in fact, usually become open-handed stewards, not just with their money, but the way they share themselves. You can't be too easily a generous-hearted giver and a worrier at the same time. The last thought of our passage is verse 31 with its familiar word to us we all have heard. Where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Did you ever realize that that's almost a completely reversible statement and it says almost the same thing? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Turn it around. He could have said, where your heart is, there your treasure will be. It really is almost completely meaning the same thing inside out. It's saying to us we need a grand obsession to rule our lives, and we all have one. And either it's the grand obsession of materialism, and your heart, therefore, is is directed somewhere to the clothing rack at the mall or the price of gas or the bumpy ride of the stock market or whatever, or your heart is fixed on your God and Savior and the pursuit of His righteousness. And when your heart is fastened there on Christ, you will gradually but surely discover that habitual worriers are dwelling in the wrong kingdom.